This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 471 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Nick Kumalatsos. Now, this is a very powerful conversation for a multitude of reasons. Nick served in Marine Recon, so special operations within the Marine community, and then transitioned out. And when he did, his own struggles and then hearing struggles of the men and women in the armed services when they transitioned out caused him to write the book Excommunicated Warrior. So that is one lens that he has. Another one is he was a gym owner, and during the pandemic, it was one of the gyms that was forced to close their doors. So some really interesting conversations, some very pertinent areas, not only in the military community, but obviously in the first responder space as well. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, and therefore making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Kumalatsos. Enjoy. Well, 
But Nick, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. That's an honor. I've heard good things. <laughs> I'm always getting tagged in these. <laughs> well, I also appreciate your uh, your flexibility. My my computer for everyone listening took a dump when we were first spot trying to do this originally. So, uh, um, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am right here in Holly Ridge, North Carolina. Beautiful. Now, I'm actually, funny enough, I'm going to be up your way for another Marine coming up uh, next week, Major Jim Capers. I'm actually going oh, to yeah. go and drive up and sit down with him next week. So, right in your neck of woods. Yeah, actually, um, uh, I'm, we are planning. He's been in one of our stores that we own down the road and um, been shipping out some of his, his books and different things. And uh, so I'm hoping to sit down with him and do a, do a podcast as well. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think the uh, documentary they made is supposed to be coming out on Amazon very soon. So I'm hoping that'll time well as, you know, to help them give him I, some We should exposure. probably get talking to him before, before that because he's probably going to be wrapped up after that happens. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, I like to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I was um, born in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, moved, moved from there uh, about two years after my, my parents separated and uh, at a very early age, don't even remember that. So I grew up with my mom um, and then uh, ended up having a brother and then a sister on my dad's side as well. So I've got a brother and a sister. Um, from two different sides of the family, uh, they actually we moved to Kansas City, spent a couple of years in Kansas City, and then back to Florida. And when that happened, that was the I feel like that was the uh, the moment that my mom got her travel bug, or she was running from the law. I'm not sure because we moved around every six months and up until I was a teenager. Um, so we moved all over the United States, back, and then eventually landed back in Florida in Panama City. And that's where um, my, my kind of run-ins with the law kind of started happening. Um, got, into, got into some trouble there. Ended up having two felonies on my record by the age of 13. Um, you know, landed in juvie a couple times. Um, county actually once for a, brief, for a brief moment, which is what realized I did not want to be in the life of crime. Um, and, and, uh, and then, yeah, and then you know, kind of got my life together and then eventually joined the, you know, joined the Marine Corps. Beautiful. Well, with so many people that found themselves in a dark place, and obviously you were one of them, um, the common denominator that comes up over and over again is childhood trauma. So when you look back now with all the knowledge you've got, with the combat, with the resilience, with the post-traumatic growth, what elements of your early childhood do you contribute firstly to kind of finding yourself on the wrong side of the law and secondly you know factor in later when you put a uniform on i think i think that the uh it wasn't so much trauma as it was the the um the desire to belong right to be, you know this because we are we are at nature nature a a tribal um, and this kind of goes into the book as well, but a, we're a tribal culture, we're a tribal animal. Uh, we want to belong to a thing, to a group. Um, and, and we naturally do it, right? If you look at, you know, we're either, you're either, you know, you know, a conservative or a liberal, you're, you know, we ought, we, we automatically just put ourselves, you know, you're either gay or straight or whatever. Like we put ourselves and we create these tribes and we put ourselves in these groups. Um, and then, so I think that's when it came down to it as a young man or becoming a young man, I, 
uh, I wanted to belong to something. I wanted to feel like I was a part of something. So I ended up joining this gang down there. And that's where the trouble came from was obviously being a part of that because that's their MO, right? That's what they do. It's some sort of, I mean, a low level organized crime, I, I guess you could say what it is. Um, and, and, but there was, you know, and, and from you, what you guys have done and, you know, and who you've talked to, you know, that there's a big part of this club, this tribe, this brotherhood that you're, this family that you're a part of, regardless of what it is, it, it is what it is. Right. And that's what they're selling. And that's what I joined into. That's what I thought I was joining into was this family of, you know, these guys and, um, that I, that would have my back and I would have theirs. And I think that's, I think that's what it really at, at its core of what it came down to is just the, the desire to belong to something. That seems to be a, a common denominator as well. And a lot of times it takes a person who is of a positive influence, you know, a mentor figure to turn yeah. most of these people around. I think in the military and the first responders, a lot of times there is that in our early life. So, you know, firstly, I think it's a very important point to understand that our kids are going to go one of two ways. They're either going to find a very, you know, negative mentor, negative tribe, or the the opposite. So the more of us that create those positive tribes, the higher chance there is of steering the kids away. Right. I think that, I think that, uh, you know, being, you know, nothing on my mom, you know, we, you know, man, my brother and I look back now and I'm like, my mom was doing, I mean, she's working two jobs, you know, trying to, you know, on her own, trying to support two boys that are running around lighting, lighting stuff on fire and, <laughs> and get in trouble. Um, but why it's so important, right. If you want to talk about, you know, the family unit, why it's so important to have, a father and a mother in a household that are stable and productive because you can invest in your kids' lives, you know, put them in something, give them that tribe, give them that art of belonging, you know, that's outside of the family tribe, right? Because I don't care what you say, as much as you do in the family, when you're raising a young man, if anything like myself, they're going to want more, right? So you've got to give them, if they're a high performing young man, like you you have to give them more, you know, whether that's sports, whether that's a program, whatever, whatever that is, they're going to need something. And how awesome it is like for us now to, that I can be able to provide that to my son, you know, knowing the alternative of what will happen if you don't give that outlet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, you mentioned sports. Did you have any mentors that came in your life as you kind of started turning that corner? And if so, any of them from the sports background? No, they, they weren't. Um, I, I got into, uh, as far as the physical aspect, I got into weight lift, weightlifting, if you want to call it bodybuilding sort of style in the 90s. Um, there was a couple guys that were really um, – that were really into that and they were in their, you know, probably later twenties and, um, and really made a good, a good impact on my life and that in the gym. Um, and I read like Arnold's Bible, uh, bodybuilding Bible that came out the big thick. I don't know if you remember that big thick, uh, book. It was like the only thing out there. There wasn't much else out there, but that, that book came out and that was like, that was the Bible. And I was like, okay, I want to do this. You know, I read in, I think it was men's health. I read, Hey, you can start lifting weights at 14. So I'm like my 14th birthday, I went and got a, a gym membership, but outside of lifting weights, I really didn't do sports. I was, uh, kind of in and out of school. I wasn't, um, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a great situation for me. Um, and, but there were some very positive 
people that were in my life um, during when I um, was on probation. So I got I got an opportunity to uh, do probation at this church, and one of the young uh, youth ministers there kind of really took a like a mentorship role in my life and made a huge impact for those several years that kind of you know kind of projected me to the next to the next step. Right now, what about um, career aspirations? When you were in the school age, what were you dreaming of becoming? Oh man, I can't even remember. I don't think I had. I think it, you know, I've always, I got my first job at the age of 11 and, um, and I just always worked and I couldn't, um, I couldn't really think anything else of uh, just like moving forward. I didn't know where I was going and I didn't really have any idea of what I was going to do when I, when I grew up. Um, and I think that's what, I think that's what landed me in the military is because, at the age of, I'd say, 16, 17, I finished my 10th grade year. That summer, I was working uh, as an audiovisual technica, technical consultant for a conference, a, a conference center, a Bay Point Marriott Conference Center. So for six to, from 6 a.m. to 2, I was setting up projectors and lights and microphones and things like that and, um, and, and making like – I think it was like – $15 an hour or something crazy at that time, like in the nineties, the late nineties. And, uh, for a 16 year old kid. And then from two 30 to 10, I was a bellman at the, at there as well. So six days a week, I was tied up from 6am until 10pm. Um, and then I would have, I made a ridiculous amount of money for that age. I mean, thousands of dollars coming in, uh, ended up moving out and li- living on my own at the beach by 17. And then it was time to go back to my 11th grade year in school. And I was like, this is ridiculous. There's no way I can go give up the, the money that I'm making and um, the money that I'm making and and go back to school. So I just left and got my GED. Um, but the problem there was I quickly realized I, I quickly realized that this was it. Like this was I've got money in my pocket. I've got a place on the beach. I, I just fast forwarded my life 20 years and I'm like, I could still be doing the same thing. So I, I kind of panicked and then just nuked my life and, uh, and went all in. I was like, I've got to go, you know, and then back in the nineties, if you remember the Marine Corps was selling uh, life of adventure, you know, they were just, that was, that's what they were selling. And, you know, you know, I think it was at the, uh, the guy that was defeating the dragon. I don't know if you remember that commercial, the Marine Corps commercial where he's, he had a sword and he's fighting a dragon, uh, or something like that. And, uh, I was like, yep, that's me. I'm out. I want, I want a drastic change because I, I foresaw my life being the same over and over and over. And I just kind of panicked. So I blew it all up and just went all in with trying to get in the Marine Corps, but I couldn't because of my past. Well, let's talk about that. Cause I think that's a very important topic that, um, you know, doesn't get enough attention is, there are many people on planet Earth that have made mistakes when they were younger. And sometimes those mistakes prevent them from, you know, a path to somewhere a lot better. And I know David Goggins had a, you know, a part of his story that he talks about. I've had firefighters on here that were in the wrong place at the wrong time, ended up 
in prison and ended up working for a prison um, wildland firefighting team and ended up getting hired by Cal Fire. So these are all very positive changes, but there's a, there's a huge stigma obviously is, well, you screwed up. You can only do these, you know, menial jobs now. So how did you overcome that? And then also, you know, what's your philosophy now on, you know, on true forgiveness and paving a way for someone to actually move on from that chapter in their life? Here's the deal. Like I and, I and I get this all the time because I actually posted a video about how I joined the Marine Corps with a criminal record. So I get these questions all the time. I did the crime. I had to do the time. Like what people don't realize is like, well, I made the decision to get better and to do better. So you should just give me the opportunity. No, no, you have to earn it. Like you have to earn and fight your way back. Is it going to be more difficult? Yes. Are you going to have to jump through hoops? Yes. But that's because you did what you did, you know, so no one owes you anything. The Marine Corps, the military or a law enforcement agency or, you know, any organization whatsoever doesn't owe you jack squat. So you have to put the work in and show them that you're worth the, the, the value of investing in. So a lot of the kids that want to that talk to me about joining the military, they're like, well, I did this and, you know, they won't let me in and this and that. I'm like, well, how long have you been trying? Well, a couple months. I'm like, dude, I tried for two years. It took me two years. I had to nuke my life. I, I got rid of the place on the beach. I moved in with my grandmother. I made I went I went from making thousands, of, you know, several thousand dollars a week to making minimum wage at nighttime at a movie theater so I could go work, go to school at a college. Uh, and get and get college credits because that would supersede my GED, you know, study for an ASFAB, took the ASFAB multiple times. You know, I got 100 letters of recommendation. I put the work in like that became my soul, my sole mission because, well, one, because they told me no. And I'm a super rebellious person. And they so as soon as they told me no, I was like, well, I'm going to show you and we'll figure this out. And two, Wait, no, two you years mean, later, you mean, yes, I'm yeah, assuming. <laughs> <laughs> two years later, that's what, that's what happened. And, um, but yeah, you have to, for the people that hit me up and tell me, this is what I did. This is, you know, how do I, how do I better my life? And you can take that model into anything, anything in life. If you did something, whether you, whether it was even your fault or not, it happened. Like you can, you can complain and, and, and cry about it, or you can just put the work in and do something. And I always tell people you're entitled to nothing, but you deserve everything you work for. So if you're going to put the, if you're going to put work in, then put the work in and go get it. Now with the actual records themselves, were there some tools that you used to, to legally get past that? So you could enter so the, at the, at the time. So at the time in my teenage years, there was really nothing I could do. Um, it's unfortunate that, um, that so to give you some backstory, um, you, you know, and I, I, you know, I don't know the backside of the legal of the, of the, you know, the law enforcement officers and everything that happened, but, um, it's funny now because when I went to SEER school in special, as a, as a special operator, um, I did very well in SEER school and I, was, I had flashbacks and I'm like, Oh, this is like talking to the cops. I've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so it made me really good at my job as I as I got older into life. Um, but nonetheless, um, I did not, you know, give anybody up. I was like this super hard kid. And I just like took it all to the, you know, took it all to the chest. Unfortunately, you know, one of the re one of the reasons why I got stuck with the actual felonies was because um, I guess everybody else did. 
talk and I didn't cooperate at all whatsoever. And, um, so I, they kind of got off, you know, scot-free and then, um, I got stuck with everything. Um, and that's, and that's pretty much the story there, but there's a little bit more that goes into it, but we won't, we won't talk about that on this podcast. Whatever happened to snitches get stitches. I guess they forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, I guess, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I got, I got stuck with it all. And then, um, there was nothing, so there was nothing at that age, which I thought when I went to the military and I turned 18, that it would be, that it would be whatever, you know, that's your childhood. Like there's no way that you can, you know, like give somebody a convicted felony at 11 years old or 12 years old. Um, but yes, you can, if you're listening, yes, you can. Uh, and so I finally got waivers and everything to get, to get, you know, in the military where it really, so there was nothing that I could do at 17, 18 years old, trying to get in the military. I just had to get the waivers, allow them. You know, like I said, I had a over, I like over a hundred letters of recommendation. My mom helped me immensely. Um, I went to college. I, I did multiple, you know, physical screenings. I went to maps and did the ASVAB test to get a higher score three different times because I needed a, a, a higher than normal score because of the GED. Um, so I put the work in to get there. Um, where it came into problem was later on. Um, I, I joined, uh, screened for Force Recon, went into Force Recon, came back, um, got into Marine Special Operations. So here I am as a uh, E6 in the military at um, in Marines at Second Marine Raider Battalion, and I go, I come back from Okinawa and uh, Japan. And I'm at, I'm, I'm in special operations and I go to a, I'm like, I'm back in America. I'm going to go pick, I'm going to go buy a gun. Um, cause you know, you can't have that, you know, personally you can't have anything over there. And, uh, so I'm back in here, I got a house and I'm like, man, this is it's good to be back in America after three years, you know? And I, you know, while I was there, I did all over Southeast Asia, Iraq. So I come back and I go apply for a pistol purchase permit. Sheriff comes out and he's like, I'm going to go pick it up. He goes, man, you can't buy a pistol. You're a convicted felon. And I'm at this time, I don't know. I'm like 25, 26 years old. I've got a, I've got a, you know, a high clearance. I'm in special operations and I can't buy a gun because I'm a convicted felon. And that's when, and that's when I actually did, you know, I, called down to, uh, the courts down there, find out what was going on. I was like, why well, I'm in my, you know, tw- my, you know, mid to late twenties. And I, I told him what I did. They're like, oh, sorry, there's nothing we can do. So I contacted a lawyer in the County, told him who I was, what unit I was with, what I was doing in, you know, in my life now, you know, at this time I'd already had two kids and, um, and he goes, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to do this pro bono. There's no reason for you to be dealing with this in your age. Like you've obviously proven yourself to, you know, the U S the state, the County that you're, you know, not that person. This was, you know, here I am, you know, 50s, 15, 16 years later. And, uh, so he actually got it, uh, sealed, expunged. I'm not really sure, but it's not on my record. Like any law enforcement officer pulls it, it's not going to show, um, it do, it does still show on the FBI record, of course, but normal law enforcement records does show. So I had to get that done and now I can be, you know, a, a normal, a normal citizen who can vote and buy, purchase weapons and all that kind of stuff, at least for now, right? Yeah. <laughs> until, well, until that's taken away too. Well, I think that's, um, you know, it's an important story to hear. Thank you for sharing it though, because there are some areas of of our laws that I think 
create a barrier to you moving on you know and here you are and i had i had a similar thing just with it wasn't i had a record but at my driver's license um i was in the dmv and i went to renew it because i i basically took the test to drive the fire engines and everything and they said my immigration papers weren't in order and i'm what are you talking about and meanwhile you know i'm this is full of some you know hispanic and asian people in in southern california some of whom are probably absolutely here because they're supposed to be. Some probably aren't. I've been yeah. a firefighter, you know, working for this country now for several years, and I'm like, you won't give me a <laughs> driving license. So yeah, the red tape sometimes just truly blocks. And you know, obviously, you had the the uh, fortitude to push through it. But I think there's there's some people that, like you said, have done the time, but now that thing is still hanging over their head and really pulling them towards the wrong side of the tracks again. Yeah, and I talk to a lot of kids, and you know, a lot of kids are you know one to 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 better themselves after they've made some mistakes. And uh, sometimes I feel like they give up early. Like they just, they, they try one or two times and they're just like, oh, that's it. I made, this is what happened. Nobody's giving me a shot. And they kind of, they throw in the towel early. And uh, I have to like kind of tell them like, listen, man, this is not a, this is not a one and done thing. This is something that, that takes work over a long period of time. Um, on the other side of that, I also tell young men uh, and women, don't do what I did. Like the things that you you don't you think just because you're young that it won't affect you in later in life. It absolutely will, and it can hamstrung you in what you want to do later in life. It's super super crucial that you what you're ha- what you're doing now, you're building a foundation for your success as an adult. Um, is it is it 100 fair? Maybe maybe not. You know, but life's not fair. Life is just going to knock you down time and time again. And it's up to you to get back up and make something happen. So, um, yeah, you know, there's uh, people say that all the time. It's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. You're 100% correct. It's not fair. People, good people get screwed over all the time. And, uh, but what are you going to do? Cry about it? Well, we're going to talk about that later with the gyms, but <laughs> we'll get back to that in a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, but speaking of a foundation being laid, so you not only entered the Marines, you entered, you know, recon and MARSOC. So when you look back again, what elements physically and mentally prepared you or, or, um, enabled you, empowered you to get through all those processes when so many other people rang the bell? So I, I think that, you know, and, and going into it, I was definitely not the fastest, smartest or strongest guys in the, in that unit by any means. Um, never, never was, and never will be. Um, but there was, I think my past, uh, you know, now that I'm, you know, knocking on the door 40 here, I, I, I look back at it and I'm like, you know, there was always something there. Like my, my childhood growing up, um, get, you know, not growing up with a father, um, that was, you know, in my life con- consistently, um, you know, getting in trouble, moving around every six months, these things hardened me because every six months I'm in a new school, I'm in a new neighborhood. Um, you know, where you know, you're, you're living out of a bag, you know, if living out of bag growing up, joining the military, it's like moving around, living on a cot, living here, sleeping here it, that affected me none. And I watched it affect people. I watched them at like affect getting tired of moving around or living out of a bag or they wanted to stay stationary or not having like the pristine conditions that they wanted to, that they felt comfortable to sleep in. For me, it just never was a, a, an issue because I grew up that way. 
So looking at all of it and looking into, you know, going into doing something hard for me is, yeah, it was hard, but man, I've been through so much leading up to that. It really, I still saw the good in it. I still saw the opportunity and I still saw the thing. I was still thankful for the the opportunity to do all these different things. And I think that's, I think that's what gave me a leg up was just being mentally more resilient than others. Because you can be the most in shape, physically fit guy, but if you are going to crack under pressure, you're going to crack under pressure. You know, that's just nothing you can do about that. Yeah. When in your book you talk about, you know, you're very aware of the uh, overtraining element. And I think I've had so many people that are kind of our age now that look back to that, you know, era and it was no pain, no gain kind of thing back then. Um, What were some of the mistakes, knowing what you know now that you made either in preparation or in active duty? Um, you mean in preparation to go to selection or preparation to do stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. So actually, so from the tactical athlete lens versus a bodybuilding lens. Yeah. So, oh man, um, knowing what I know now, I would have been so much more prepared. Granted, I still made it right, but I would have been so much more prepared on a physical level to where it just would have been that much more easier physically. Um, you know, in my early days of the Marine Corps, this was before they really started the performance and resilience program with SOCOM. It was before they started doing any sort of, um, uh, I forgot what they call the regular, even the regular Marine Corps is doing more tactical athlete type stuff. Um, you know, I was in the area era of, and you probably, you've probably seen this as well in your time, where you roll up, you know, the guy, everybody's like smoking a cigarette. You know, you put your cigarette out and like, all right, let's go 10 miles. There's no warm up. There's no dynamic warm up. You just start and go. And it was all about volume is run till you puke and then run some more. And then, you know, 10, you know, 2008 count bodybuilders and you just go hard as hard as you can puke and then go hard. You know, that's how, you know, you got good training was if people are getting hurt and throwing up. They're like, then we check box. We, we did it. We're tough, you know, but then knowing what I've known now and applied into my life and education, I look at it and go, wait a minute. It's not the way Olympic athletes train. (laughs) It's not the way the NFL trains. It's not the way anybody in in a professional sport trains, right? They train off recovery, off percentages. You know, there's, there's so much more science behind training a human body, right? Um, and I wish we would kind of would have taken some of those lessons from like the Russians on, on at the elite level of how they train, um, which now we have. And um, so, yeah, I would have trained a lot smarter. I would have trained much more, like you said, a tactical. I would have, I would have taken an athlete and which is what we do now is take an athlete and make them a tactical athlete. And I we have to explain to them, hey, do you think um, somebody that's training for the Olympics at X sport? Uh, trains till they pukes and then pukes some more like no that's 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 not what they're doing you know what i mean so uh so anyways that's that's kind of how i would approach it now i would approach it like the protocols that we've put in place um it would be much more uh work to rest ratio a lot more percentage-based training um yeah yeah you said the, the russians do the russian military train 
more like that then? They, they like so they did. They have and they done a lot a lot more. Um, if you look at their, I mean, if you look at them as a whole, right? You know, their Olympic their Olympic program, their military program. I mean, you can't argue that they have some of the at least strongest pound for pound individuals in the world. I mean, they perform. Now, what their mental state is, I don't know <laughs> because of what they put but what they put people through. Um, but as far as their athletic capability, um, we, there's no denying that they are up there and have been for have been for several decades. Yeah, because it always that. gets written off. Oh, it's, you know, PEDs. Well, firstly, everyone was on PEDs. And secondly, that doesn't yeah, make you an incredible athlete. It just, you know, Look, first of all, let's let's cross this. Let's cross this bridge right here. Um, <laughs> you can't take PEDs and become the world's greatest and sit on the couch and eat whatever you want and think that you're going to do what, it, you know, anything. Well, shit, there's my work, workout plan out the window there. <laughs> <laughs> no, and people, and people think that that's just like, it's a cheat. It's not there. If anything, if you look at somebody that's, that was taking one of those guys that are taking PDs, they're just, because they can recover so much more, they're actually working out even harder. So they're training even harder than they would if they weren't taking them because they have the ability to. So it's actually enhancing their rest as opposed to their work. Itself. Exactly. Well, that's where that's where that and that's okay. So I'm glad you said that. So when it comes from the tactical athlete side, this is where we improve. And this is what the military always doesn't get. It doesn't get correct on the training side. We don't get better by training. When we train, especially in the body, we break the body down. How the body improves is through sleep, nutrition, and rest. That's where that's where we get better. So we spend, say, we spend an hour in the in, in a training facility training. That's breaking our body down. We're getting tired. We're getting we're breaking the muscle down, breaking muscle fibers down. We're actually breaking the body down. It's it's eating ourselves. And then we have supposed to have proper nutrition, rest, and recovery. When we have that, that is what's actually making us better. But we don't, a lot of people don't, well, we didn't focus on those things. So how are you actually improving? You're not. Yeah. Well, and that's the problem in, in the first responder professions. We don't get that sleep. So, you know, now as I've, I've kind of, I've come from a sports science, excuse me, a sports science background as well. But the last few years, but she's talking to people like Jeff Nichols, who's on your book as well. He's been on here three times now. Um, you know, you understand, okay, well, that's, that's the most important thing and you know deregulating the nervous system after a shift but then you're like well wait a second we don't get those rest days every third day a firefighter is awake pretty much all night whether we're running calls or just waiting to have the the alarms go off and then you look at the obesity and the heart disease and the cancer and the injuries and you're like well it's no wonder because as you said if we are doing the polar opposite of of an olympic athlete and that's and that's really good i'm glad you brought that up because he was the big fan. He's, uh, you know, Jeff's one of the big uh, influences in our life and, and as part of the TSAC program with the NSCA. Um, I think that program is doing a lot of good to change that. And the more agencies that can get on board with the NSCA and the TSAC outline, the better off they're going to be. Not only not only they're going to have the longevity of their of their employees and 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 uh, first responders. Um, but look, just just look at workman's comp and insurance alone. Like it's much cheaper to invest in a training facility, a coach, and put these guys on a program. I mean, the military's figured it out. I don't know why they haven't. Then the you know the long term effects of workman's comp and insurance. 
Absolutely. I was talking to a, a retired SWAT officer yesterday who was going to be coming on the show, and we were discussing the, the most recent shooting where the female officer pulled her weapon instead of the taser. And he had, a, had, had exactly the same comment as I did. I don't know what that person is like as, as, a, as a law enforcement officer or anything like that, but he said, I want to see the training records. Like, what is that department's, you know, fitness, strength and conditioning standards? What are their actual training? How much um, training under stress have they done to the point where you fall to that level? If it's not where it should be, and then as you as you say, rest and recovery and overworks and mandatory shifts, you have to take all those elements into account when you look at that one video. And it's a tragic video of a young man that shouldn't have been killed. And and like and yeah, and that's and that's you're exactly right. We're where does the and and God, man, this is such a hard conversation to have. But when it comes down to those type of incidences, is it the officer's fault? And I'm not saying that it is or it isn't. But what is the um, what is the department's role in that incident long term? You know, did was that officer given every opportunity to opportunity to make the right decision? Yeah, well, and the other side of it as well is financial. So that's one of the big pushbacks I get when I talk about firefighter shifts. Oh, but and it's like, well, you're looking at it at a completely short-sighted view. That one case is probably going to cost that department millions of dollars. Imagine if you'd invested that into higher hiring standards, annual fitness standards. $500,000 for a training facility and a coach. Imagine if that's – and imagine what you could get with that money compared to the millions that you're you're spending on. And that's just that. Like think about all the other normal little things that are coming up with insurance and workman's comp and everything. Um and and I same thing with you see these videos with uh you know there's a big push in uh first responders for jujitsu and and a lot of people are sponsoring there's a lot of organizations that are doing it. Uh, I think it was uh was it Atlanta or one of the Gracie gyms that that did it and uh Non, like I think it's non-violent arrest was down. I don't remember the actual percentages, but you could probably pull it up. But um, it was something astronomical since that gym has been giving law enforcement officers training. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, and the same with strength and conditioning. You know, you look, yeah. you look to me. I've had so many people on here that are either from jujitsu background, special operations, whatever it is, and the officers, the law enforcement officers that are in shape, that are you know jujitsu trained, ju- yeah, very well trained in jujitsu. They hardly ever have to go hands on because when they right. look at the person, the person looks at the officer in the uniform. They're like, "I'm not fucking with that person." You can tell in their right. eyes, especially if they have gnarly, they have gnarly ears. Their ears are all exactly. You're like, "Nah, I'm good. I don't, I don't want no part in that." Exactly, it but doesn't have to be a, a monster. Yeah, you see these videos of these law enforcement officers getting into these tussles, and they don't know how to control the person. So what happens to the what happens to the the person? They end up pulling a taser, pulling a gun. Somebody gets shot when. All you had to do was subdue him. You know what I mean? Grab him, put him inside control, hold him there. Your brother, you, you know, your partner cuffs him. It's done. But you watch these, like, honestly, to be honest, absolute ridiculously silly videos of these these tussles that are taking place that don't need to happen. And it's because the departments, and I'm going to put it back on the departments and the chiefs, are not investing in their officers because they're too busy looking at the bottom line and not protecting their departments. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's madness to me, and again, I hear I'm just a firefighter, you know, observing through non-law enforcement eyes. I think it's insanity they're not riding two to a car as well. I mean, that's right. the force multiplier element of having two people Especially instead of one. Especially in today. 
Yeah. And the way things are at this past year. Absolutely. Why would you put your, why would you put somebody in risk like that? Yeah. By themselves. I mean, there's no, the military doesn't operate that way. Why would you? Well, no, the fire service doesn't either. Like, you know, it's, it's absolute sacrilege if we run into a burning building on our own. You know, there's, there's a reason that we go in Paris. There's, it's just, it's asinine. Why would you do that? Yeah. So why would you send a law officer to the same thing? Yeah, I agree. Well, going back to your deployment, something that I always like to ask anyone who's actually boots on the ground being in a combat zone, and I'll preface this by saying for everyone else, the rest of us, the, the civilian world, we get shown a polarizing view. We either get the very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, or we get the very yeah. anti-war, they're all baby killers, and none of the kind of human being element in the middle. So when you first got deployed, when you first found yourself in, in you know, a, a combat zone, understanding as well as a civilian that a lot of the atrocities that these men and women are, are seeing are done to the civilians of that country. So it's not like we're in war with Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, it's those people that are actually being victimized. Did you have any moments where, despite whatever the politics were that sent you there, when you were there standing in the middle of that city, you started witnessing some of the horrific things that were happening and and not that it justified because you're trained to do what you're trained to do but but it kind of it became real that no matter why i was sent here there are some horrible people that need to be taken care of absolutely um and this is what i'm glad you brought that up because it's the dynamic that people don't understand especially within certain cultures and, and i'll say certain cultures in in the uh you know in the Muslim world, um, there's a lot of people over there, and I'm not talking about educated, well-educated, well-funded, you know, individuals. We're talking about tribal er- areas that are, you know, that are not well-educated. That are you know, just they're just not okay. Um, you see a lot of you see a lot of individuals um, that don't value human life. I mean, in, in human life of their own families, their own children, um, you see your you see daughters get, you know, young, like eight to 12 year old girls being sold off to different village elders for as as a commodity. And, you know, so for the for the you know, and, and I'm not I'm not polarizing one way or the other. I'm definitely not all the way liberal to where I'm like, you know, oh, poor them because I know better. Um, I've watched I've watched us invest millions of dollars in bridges and wells and copper and uh, and watch them just tear it apart. Um, shit in their wells. I've I've watched them, you know, us clean up their water and then literally they're just pouring shit down the well. Uh, I've watched them strip out you know, infrastructure to, to recycle copper. I've watched them take apart bridges that way, that, that the, you know, USAID has, has spent millions of dollars putting into, into bridges for them and infrastructure. So yeah, I don't feel, I'm definitely not on that side. Um, and I'm definitely not on the other side of like, you know, make, you know, make it a glass, you know, make it a parking lot, you know, just take care of it all and let, you know, like God sort them out. Um, there, there's a balance in between, but I, what I do realize is there are, there are places in this world that do, regardless of how you feel about them, they do not feel um, value for human life like you and I do. So even though that you do, um, even though that, you know, we do, 
um, they they don't, and they would take advantage of you in a heartbeat. And um, so it's it it's a that's a it's a hard place to put young men without good training because you're especially in the special operations side you get a very close look to that environment and it is it's quite the conundrum yeah and i think that's that's such an important thing for us to understand as i i say sometimes we send our children out there i mean most of these young men and women are barely out of high school which we all Mm -hmm. thought we were so mature and grown up when we were 18 and then you get to like 40 (laughs) and you're like oh shit okay i was still a baby but yeah, and then you know you hear some of these stories. You know the special needs kid that's chained in the in the yard, and you know the the gays that are thrown off the roofs, and you know the acid attacks, and all these things. Um, and so it's very important for us to understand what we're asking these newly graduated men and women, children, to go and do in the name of our our country. Now, yeah. conversely, what about um, like the the humanity stories that that kind of sprung up as well were there any moments of kindness compassion or or humanity that really popped out during some of those combat zones especially in my younger years in iraq that you know i remember coming across families that were just like you said iraq was a big one where there there were a lot of individuals there that were just living their life and doing their thing and there were state actors coming in from iran or from different different countries to uh, essentially be uh, insurgents that they weren't even from that country, though, you know, and I'd watch them manipulate villages, hold people hostage, um, threaten the local villages, you know, for X amount of things or whatever. And literally, we stayed with families that were just trying to survive. And I can't imagine. Well, no, I can now I can't imagine um, because some of the similar things has happened here, not to that extent, obviously, but, um, you know, they're just trying to do their thing and they have this external force, these polarizing external forces basically in their village fighting and it puts them in, in quite the conundrum, you know? So you do, when you, when you do come across that at a, on a very, you know, intimate level, um, you had there's really you do really feel the impact of of what's happening in that area and um, how shitty it is to be there and then at the time how freaking thankful it was to be an American and live in a place that's free. Yeah, which I think is is another calibration that that could be revisited right now. No matter what side of the fence a lot of people are, I think you know the gratitude piece has been lost this last year. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's important that we hear stories like that. One other area that I just want to touch on before we kind of move on to transitioning. I've One of the goals of this podcast is to reverse engineer a lot of the issues that we see as a responder. You know, you get to see on, on American soil a lot of the really worse, worse elements of society, whether it's the obesity epidemic and these people are being sold pills and they die anyway in their 40s and 50s and it's a big fucking lie. Um, or the addiction element, you know, and, and one of the big things that I try and talk about a lot is the, the ridiculousness of the prohibition of addiction. I'm not talking selling. I'm not talking smuggling, but it, putting addicts into prison, I think is insanity. And many of the members of the military I've had on now 
had talked about seeing terrorism funded by the illicit drugs, uh, you know, prohibition of drugs as well. So, did not loading the question, but did you see the impact of you know selling drugs, funding terrorism from the you know the, the perspectives that you were in? Oh man, what a what a hypocritical thing with the United States. I mean, you can look at history when it comes down to you know the agency, the DEA, Reagan with the you know the whole war on drugs and everything that we did, you know, all over the world really to either fight the Cold War or and, and you know whatever. Um, th- that's pretty. You know, if you don't know about that, it's predominantly public knowledge at this point quick Google search and some history, well, you'll figure out, you know, what we, what our role was, you know, in conjunction with drugs. Now, what I saw, what I can actually say is when it comes to specifically Afghanistan with, when it comes to drugs was, is the poppy fields, right. And how heroin moves in in the world and, you know, what, where it's going. Um, again, you know, even then I was like, what the hell, why are we doing this? Um, and, you know, now looking back at it and knowing more of the history of, of, of what we did, what, you know, special forces did in Nicaragua and, you know, what the agency did down there and, um, and how we played the, how we play the game, you know, how we utilize drugs and trade in the world to manipulate our, you know, I say ours as, as America's will, right. Um, to give you an example there in, you know, in Afghanistan, it was like, burn this poppy field. Don't burn this poppy field. Burn. Now we're burning. Now we're not burning. You know what I mean? DA is involved. Now we're now the DA is not involved and this is no longer an issue. And we're talking about within the span of nine months, if we go back and forth, depending on what agenda we're trying to, we're trying to, to get, and I'll leave it as vague as that. But, um, Unfortunately, it's not a hard stance where it's like drugs are bad. Let's take care of it. It's no, it's a tool to be used to manipulate trade in individuals and money and cash flow. And it still is. Yeah. You see, and it's so fascinating to get all these perspectives because I don't know, I'm not out there, but I do see the impact of the addiction crisis that we're in as a paramedic. I mean, the number of yeah. people that put you know yellow sheets over because they came to whatever it was, whether it was the the war, you know, the 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 turf wars or the gangs, yeah. or whether it was someone overdosing. Um, and so, one of the other layers now, which is even more crazy, is that we have men and women that serve this country, and they come back, and now we're discovering that um, MDMA led uh, um, counseling and, and psilocybin are having these healing elements. And people like Jeff, who I think he talked about it on this, have to go overseas to go and get the treatment that to treat them for the the basically the mental wounds that they got defending the United States of America. So seeing that the addiction element, you know, the the drug prohibition is a complete fucking failure through a paramedic's eyes, and then seeing the the hypocrisy of that law treating our veterans, I mean, I think that needs to be one of the main conversations at the moment. Uh, I mean, how how can you when you got pharmaceutical companies uh, making hand over fist dollars with pharmaceutical drugs that are handing out to veterans? How are you gonna? How are we gonna even start to have that conversation on an actual on an actual serious level that's gonna cha- make changes? I mean, and then you start like the only people that are gonna have that conversation are who politics. Well, 
are politicians. How how do you think politicians are going to work when they start, you know, smashing big pharma? You know, we saw how we saw what happened when certain politicians went against big pharma. The whole world came against them, you know, and uh, so that's not going to be held lightly. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I know that, you know, this and this, you know, this is more of a conversation. I'm interested to hear your opinion because you've talked to a lot of people. But that where that's where I immediately go. Well, let's make drugs illegal. Let's make drugs legal. All of them. Mm-hmm. All of them. I agree 100%. That's what Portugal did. Well, they, they decriminalized it. And Switzerland actually made it more legal. And I, I sat in Portugal with the dude who spearheaded it. Because my family, really? some of my family moved to Portugal. In less than 10 years, they went from the worst um, addiction epidemic in Europe to the lowest. And so all why, they did is they but, have the balls why to change is that? If, if drugs are If drugs are legal, why is addiction dropping? So... For a number of reasons, the biggest thing is when you have when 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 addiction is a crime, everyone's in the shadows. So the shitbags of the world rise to power. I mean, you know, like I joke around, you know, alcohol prohibition ended, you know, and then Capone was, you know, we shouldn't know his name, but because of that, you know, we know his right. name. And but now you don't see like you know Jim Beam and Jack Daniels having turf wars in in Kentucky. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, they're but making money. Exactly. They're just selling it normally. So when when you make it a mental health issue and you funnel all that money we had in the so-called war on drugs, and don't get me wrong, you know smuggling and all that stuff absolutely should be illegal, and it is there in Portugal. But the addicts go, oh, you mean I'm not going to be arrested? So now when they go through that process, they get. They get empowered with addiction programs, with psychological counseling, with job creation. And they don't have a criminal record that we talked about earlier. So now you're actually able to work instead of having the audacity to have childhood trauma, use drugs, get caught. And now, you know, you're up against just, it the rest of your mind life. Bl- yeah, it's mind blowing to me for like the, the actual psyche of it, right? Because I think a lot of it has to do with just the psyche of doing something wrong. It's illegal. So there's some sort of rebellious portion of the human body that's like, Screw it! I'm gonna do it because it's I'm getting away with it, or it's illegal, or it's, I'm being shady. But you, t- it's like being a kid, right? Tell a kid not to do something. What do they do? They go do it because they want to go push the limit, right? But you, and the same thing. You know, I look at my cousins that were raised in Greece who could go walk down to the street at five years old and go buy a bottle of wine for their family and take it back, or a pack of smokes or whatever. They never overdrank as teenagers. How many keg stands have you ever seen in Greece? <laughs> never no, no I've never seen in England never seen in France I used to never, ski, yeah, so ski in Austria up, yeah, like, so it's the same thing exactly right? like it, no, yeah, like, yeah you would go get you would go get pissed but it was never at the level that you see Americans do it right and why is that because they're exposed to it their whole life it's not a big deal you get somebody that's too 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 drunk and you're like this guy's an ass, asshole you know and it's onesies and twosies but here it's like a cultural thing to underage drink and to go party. And, and I, and I think ha- having that perspective of my, of my other side of my family in Greece kind of gave me the same thing. I was like, this just seems stupid. And now, so with my kids, there weren't a lot. I mean, maybe I probably should have had more rules, but I didn't have a lot of rules. Like we go to Greece. If my 14 year old wants a glass of wine, she gets a glass of wine. 
actually got in trouble the other day letting my son have a sip of a, a drink in a public place and security came over and no <laughs> we way. got told off and I was like oh shit I forgot we can't do that here can we <laughs> but the thing is is you know what she's not doing she's not sneaking out and going to party mm-hmm. you know what I mean like I'm not I there's there's I never had I never had my do- other daughter's 18 years old she she might as well be a prude um, I'm almost to the point that she, I want her to adventure and try some things a little bit more than she is. Um, but it's because there was really nothing that was completely off limits. Yeah. So the, there's a psyche portion when it comes to drug and addiction that I feel like that it's also there. So you remove that and then what happens? You said you were in Okinawa. I saw this in Japan. I lived there for 15 months and because of the respect in that culture, which, you know, some would view would be almost too much, especially in like a, a business world where it's very much repressed. You know, you don't challenge authority. You know, if your boss is, yeah. you don't talk back, you don't, you know, you don't kind of step outside those realms. I saw again, a lot of binge drinking there. A lot of yeah. their comics were very graphic, whether it's violent, yeah. sexual, that kind of thing. And I think that's the same kind of thing. If you repress people and hold people back and 2020 is a perfect example, Usually, you know, the opposing reaction is is far more violent. So when you remove those barriers, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whatever, or even just an actual sensible conversation with your child about sex, the chances of them going way outside the, the boundaries are a lot less. I like to use the analogy of, and a lot of people don't know this, but like in the Marine Corps, you take a like an infantry unit. And in the Marine Corps, they're young. They have a lot of rules, a lot of restrictions, right? And especially when they deploy and they go do things in different training, they box up, let's say, 18 to 21-year-old. I would say 75% of these units are 18 to 21-year-old men. And they put them in essentially cages. And I'm not, not actual cages like dog <laughs> cages. But mentally, they box them up into a cage. They put them together. They're not allowed in public. They don't go, they go train, you know, they eat, sleep and shit together. And they, for six months, they are not, they don't have any liberty. They don't go out. They don't do anything. They are boxed up. And then they say, okay, we're going to give you 96 hours off, but here are all your rules. Don't get in trouble. Don't do this. Don't do this. What do you think is going to happen? Same as the UFC house when they don't give them TVs, but they fill the liquor cabinet. Exactly, right? And they, that's, they do that because why? Because they, they want to fight. Get, hmm. They want to get drama out of them. So, so the Marine Corps is, to me, mind-boggling. It's like, okay, you're going to take 18 and 20-year-old kids, lock them up for six months, and then let them out for 96 hours and expect that everybody's going to behave? They're going to go burn the town down. And that's what you saw, you know, when at mute when the guys go on mute ports and they go to these different spots in Europe, they literally get off the get off the boat and go burn shit to the ground. It's the same concept, same yeah. exact concept. You told you you twenty twenty you locked everybody up. You told everybody you couldn't do anything, and then what happened? And then a couple little isolated incidents is happening, and what? And you, boom, there you go, right in the streets, burn the city down. Yeah, exactly. I think, and that's the thing when you take away that autonomy from from a mental health point of view too. And I heard you talking. I forget who it was now, but you did the the kind of podcast interview between each chapter of your book. I listened to the audio book, yeah. um, which I really like that format, by the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a lot of people forget is that when you join the military, you lose control of your life. And you know, for again, young 
fired up men and women, I'm sure it's fine. But as you progress in, that lack of autonomy, whether it's in the military or a fire service or whatever, that starts to to kind of you know weigh on you because Absolutely. humans are supposed to be able to think for themselves. Yeah, and and I think that's across the board when it comes to you know drugs, alcohol, addiction. I mean, now they figured it out with alcohol, but they figured it out because they taxed it so they could make money off of it. So just do the same thing. Legalize all this shit. Stop criminalizing it. What are you going to do? It's going to mess up the whole drug trade. All the criminals are not going to like it, right? Because you're messing with their pocketbooks, you know? Well, that's the thing. Imagine imagine the impact on terrorism. Imagine the impact on the cartels. Imagine, you know, yeah. if you take away demand, that's economics 101. It's going to affect supply. They f- so, they'll fade out. They'll yeah. fade out. You know, they're, they're, they're going to scrape and crawl for some things. But at the end of the day, you, you cut off their money train. Either that or you force them to go legitimate. Yeah. And that's just it. How many great, great business people, medical people, you know, uh, chemists are out there and they could actually be doing it and maybe curing cancer or something instead of, right. you know, murdering each other in the streets. But, but so it leads me to the question is, is there an agenda behind keeping it, keeping things criminalized? Yeah. I mean, there absolutely is because I think the war on drugs in, in itself is worth so much, you know. But again, right. you know, I mean, look at the prison systems. How many of our prisoners are directly related to drugs or indirectly related to drugs and our system is swelling you know we've got 2.2 million prisons at the moment that is not a good statistic no it's and, and that whole that whole thing is is you know that what was it the uh was it the 84 crime bill or whatever it is basically locking people up for you know minor minor crime or minor drug like that's just absurd you know you remove all that right now how many people if if you were if you pulled that and made it made it all legal how many people would have to get let let out of prison Exactly, and what is, and what does that relieve on? I mean, not to mention, like you talk, we went, go back to like fathers in the home. What will that do to an entire generation? You know, yeah. like quit locking up fathers for what? An ounce of weed? Come on, man. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it is it's crazy. And the one just before we move on, the one other area with the addiction thing. You know, obviously things like marijuana, psilocybin, there's there's a lot of very therapeutic ones. And there are things like, you know, um, you know, meth and PCP, which aren't gonna improve right. someone's life. So those ones, those addicts just go to a safe um, you know, a medical center to to take take their hit, mm-hmm. hopefully wean off. So yeah. the fentanyl overdoses, the heroin overdoses, those don't happen because you go to your place, you actually get probably a better quality product as well. You have your high, you're being watched, and then you go about your day. So even that element, all the overdoses that we see would all but go away. And then you think about the, the court system too, all those cases where people sit in jail for months and months and months. All those tax dollars spent yeah. on different things, medical and everything else. Yeah. Legal system. And then, and then also the, you know, them being incarcerated as well, because we're, we're all paying for that. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, then we've really hit that, that subject solidly. Thank you. <laughs> um, going to the transition element, that's definitely a topic that has, really become very, very important that you know, the more I learn about it. Whether it's military, police, fire, so many of us, multitude of things. Firstly, a lot of us bring trauma into the profession and that's a, that's mm-hmm. an area that's really not discussed, I think, much at all. Obviously, are things that we see and do when we're in, when we're in the, the uh, profession, but you touched on at the beginning, the tribal element too. So yep. in the military, you know, you transition, you talk, um, you know, about 
basically, you know, getting your your uh, discharge papers and that's it. And I talk about the same thing in the fire service. That bay door closes the last time behind that retiree or, you know, it could even be a promotion or someone who got hurt. But that is such a a hard thing for a lot of people to deal with. So, mm-hmm. you ended up writing, you know, your book based on this whole topic after your experience. So, kind of lead me through why you decided to transition out and then and then what that road was like for you. Um, you know, I, for there's a lot, you know, looking back at it now at the time I was burnt out. Um, I, I had done what I wanted to do by staying in the fight. When I joined, when I went into recon and then went into MARSOC, I was able to never really do, uh, like a time off a timeout. Um, for those listening, I, I served from 2000 to 2012. And, um, which was basically the height of, you know, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, things kind of, things kind of slowed down in Afghanistan uh, or in Iraq in seven, eight. And then there was, I actually wrote a white paper about that. It's on my website. Um, and then it spiked again in, um, in, in 08, just as the spike was going, just the things were uh, slowing down in Iraq, it, it spiked in Afghanistan, oddly enough. Um, and I, I wrote, I wrote some correlations of why that is. Um, but nonetheless, um, so my time was spent heavily in, in that, in that field, um, in a high deployment rate. And, uh, so I was just at, you know, by the, by 2012, I was pretty burnt out. I was pretty burnt out with the politics. There were some significant things that happened, um, politic wise and things that happened w- while I was on a team that involved, you know, state department, uh, the POTUS that, you know, uh, you know, um, commander in chief at the time, you know, president Obama. And I just saw that kind of started seeing like, this is just, you know, what we're, what this is just horseshit. And, uh, and on top of that, I was in a military, I was, you know, even though I'm in special operations, I'm still in the military, right? There's still a system to be promoted. There's still a system that, your success and your and your um, the way you move up is still part of a system. It's not on you. If you work hard, doesn't mean just because you work hard doesn't mean you get promoted. That's not the way it works. The fire service you know? is the same. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like in any any system, right? Law enforcement, fire service, anything like that. Um, you, you know, you don't get promoted off your off your work ethic. Um, and I was ready. One, I was I was done, and I was turning it more not. I guess kind of morally and mentally, my heart, I was becoming more hardened. Um, like the more I went into it, the more that there was just shades of gray and a uh, lot, lot, you know, not my very much empathy in things. Um, and I, we, and Jeff and I talked about this in the audio book, right? And we, I think we, we, we talked about like having to be that person for that job, you know? And as I got older and as I became, you know, I wanted to be more, more involved in my kids' lives and just, you know, and just be here more. Um, I was turning into a person that I saw I did not, well, I was a person that I didn't want to be. And I wanted to figure out how to get back to that, you know, not become fully that person. And um, I wanted to be in charge of my own success. I wanted to have the power through my own work ethic and my own outcome to be successful. And you just can't do that in the military. 
not fully. Um, you know, in the civilian world, I can work my ass off, be really smart, get some really good mentors and coaches. And it's essentially up to me to be successful. It's on me, you know, and if I achieve it, it's because of my hard work and my team's hard work and that sort of thing. I put the effort forth, but in any sort of system, you know, they have a process of being promoted. You have to take a test. You need to go get a degree at, you know, um, et cetera. And so, so for me, there, it was multifaceted at the time. I, I was really burnt out. I was tired of the politics and, um, and I wanted to be in charge of my own success. And that's, and that's really what it came to. And, and, uh, I, I made, I made the decision my last deployment of, of actually a bunch of us, I would say 75% of my last team called it quits and we were all anywhere from 10 to 13 years. And, uh, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of experience to lose in one go. Yeah. And that's kind of when you, when you look at special operations, that's a, that's a big loss is around the 12 year mark. Around the, especially during that time, I, I don't, I can't speak for it now. It's, you know, it's been, it's been eight years, I think. No, almost 10. Jeez. Next year be 10 years. Um, so the, it's a quite different now. I don't know if it's the same, same, but, uh, at the time, uh, there was a good span of, of years that, um, you know, when we were really, really heavy on deployments to, to combat zones, um, that we were losing guys around the 12 year mark. Yeah, I even found that in my own career. I remember Andy Stumpf t- talking about um, kind of hitting a bit of a plateau around ten. And when I look back in the fire service, it wasn't it wasn't arrogance like oh I I I know it all now. Quite the opposite. But it was just when you're early in your career, you learn a huge amount every single time. And as you get through more and more, you're still learning, but it felt like it was less exciting. And I'm just taking away a little bit less because I've seen more and more as as time's gone on. If you look at all, if you look at, you know, firefighting, law enforcement, paramedic, military, across the board, you also have to look, there's multiple things happening at the same time. You also have to look at the age group. The typical average person joins both when they're around 18, 20 years old, right? So where, what age are you when you've been doing the job 10, 12 years, 30, 32 years old, and you've been doing a very hard job. So I, so I, you know, a couple messaged me. So th- the biggest purchaser of our book is obviously military. Probably the second close, if not the first is law enforcement and then fire and then firefighting, um, that buys, that buys that book. Um, and I'll have a guy reach out to me and he's like, this is happening. This is happening. And he's like, I got low. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, let me guess low back pain, this hard to sleep, um, put on some pounds X, Y, and Z. And I, and he goes, yeah, how'd you know? I said, let me guess. You've been doing this about 10 or 12 years. He goes, yep, just hit 12 years. And I can repeat that conversation with so many people. And it's because going back to the TSAC program or the tactical athlete program, they're not being taken care of, right? So they're, they're just grinding on shift work for over a period of time. Now you're getting to a place where you're, they're not sleeping anymore. They're not recovering. Their testosterone is, is your hormones are jacked up. Um, their, their back hurts because they sit in a patrol car and then they have to go sprint. And now they're, you know, they're not conditioned to be able to move and stretch their hips are their hips are stuck in this position. And, then you, you know, so their body's starting to kind of, you know, they're getting older. And for that job, just so anybody that's listening, like if, if you're one of them, you know, but early 30s, 
feels pretty fucking old <laughs> when you've been doing that job 10 or 12 years. You know, it starts to creep up on you. 20s, not so bad. Once you kind of pass 30, um, it starts to hurt if you've been doing that job for so, so many years. Um, and then you're in, you're in that like upper middle management kind of, um, you've got the, you know, the, the amount of experience on the actual tat on the, at the tactical level, you're one of the mo more experienced people, but you're also having to deal with organizational politics and you've been dealing with them for 10 plus years now. And so you're not sleeping, your body hurts, you're tired of the politics. And so what happens? You're like, I'm done, man. This is exhausting. I want, I'm, I'm, I'm not with my family. I'm in an organization that I feel like is not taking care of me. The politics are bullshit. You know, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. Well, you mentioned testosterone too. That's a huge one. Um, Kurt Parsley was the first guy that kind of educated me on that. And I, I challenge anyone now, anyone that's had good blood work done, that's uh, you know, five plus year responder to find a, a, a male who's got a T over three, three fifty. And understanding yep. the history of that scale and that 300 range is the 65 year old dude in that study, not the 25 year old dude. It's horrendous, you know, and obviously the, you know, some people need the, um, exogenous testosterone, the, the shots, but so many people also, we could reverse that if we just gave them the rest and recovery, the, you know, the gap between the shifts so they could actually catch up on their sleep. Well, typically, after if if they damage it with if with recovery, it, it's very difficult for it to. If you're over thirty, and you've damaged your endocrine system and your pituitary gland, it very rarely will it come back naturally on its own. Um, especially if you have any sort of trauma whatsoever. Um, but that's why it's so crucial. I wish I wish that with age, any I wish every agency and the military would do hormone panel testing once a year from the start. If you're 18, 20 years old, you just like your annual physical, that's just part of it, your hormone panel. You don't have to do it every six months, just once a year, unless you get hurt. If there's a traumatic incident, boom, now you're testing it immediately to see what's happening. But that way, over the period of time, we had that data. And I think uh, Jeff actually was talking about that with uh, his, former, his, the, his former unit that he was with, that they were actually checking that um, you know, periodically through missions and through, through trauma and over time, he was working on that before he left. But, uh, but that would be, wouldn't that be amazing if you use like your entire career, you just at a panel every year and you immediately saw when things started to kind of take a hit and then what, what, what correlating symptoms that had, you know, it'd be, it, it would be amazing to have, and we, that way we can kind of get ahead of that, um, with our people. And it's so incredibly cheap. It's just one of the cheapest things to make people perform better and feel better is to keep their hormones in check. Um, but the same thing with me. I got out and I'm 30 years old and um, I'm actually launching a video at two o'clock today. Um, I don't know when this will come out, but I'm launching a video in 30 minutes um, about why veterans need testosterone or need to get their blood checked um, and uh, kind of talking about my own story. But, that, but I've done that a lot. Yeah, beautiful. Well, it's funny because I, I was always, I was always the guy that used all my sick time, all my vacation time, you know. And there's always people that had the badge of honor with the hundreds of hours saved up. And I think yeah, maybe, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I had like, the history. I, it was like I want to say when I left, I had like a, I don't know, 150 days of leave, 
that I that that I hadn't used. Yeah, it's stupid. So stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think because my T now is like six hundred, but I think that was why because I understood even back then. I think you know the the sometimes you had to basically call in fake that you had some sort of you know horrendous disease, but I didn't care. You know, it is what it is. But and yeah. sleep. If you were sleeping, then that's that's a big thing. Exactly, and I think that's the yeah. only difference. You know, I, my nutrition was good, my exercise, but it was the fact that I I didn't care. How old are you? Uh, forty-seven. Forty-seven and yeah. six hundred. That's actually pretty freaking amazing. Yeah, and I'm not I a big guy, as you can see. So <laughs> I still want to get you another three hundred. Uh, up a three another three hundred, but. Yeah, but that's pretty, that's pretty good. That's pretty good naturally. That's awesome. Yeah, but I think that's just it. I mean, it's kind of like a you know self experimentation, and that was also, I think I had that done about a year after retiring as well, six months or a year. So you know that was that was catching up on some sleep too. But well, you you talked about you know obviously the transition out in the book, but just to touch on it, where was like the lowest place that you found yourself, and then kind of talk me through that recovery out of that dark place to where you are now. So, um, the lowest part was probably about a year out of the service. Um, I'm just, it's, it's funny. I thought I could, I, I wanted to be successful and be in my own ch- charge of my own thing. But what you don't, what people don't realize and what I didn't realize is how long it was going to take to do that on my own. Um, but because I thought I was like, oh, a year and a half, I'm going to be super successful. Like, it's just going to take me a year and a half and it just doesn't work that way. It's patience and time and a lot of work over a long period of time. But, um, about a year, about a year afterwards, um, the, without me knowing it, I didn't know about really, we didn't really know about post-traumatic stress. It was kind of a real, it was kind of a real negative term. Uh, I didn't personally didn't believe in it. I thought it was just weak people. Um, I mean, I publicly said that, um, and I didn't really, I didn't know about anything about hormones at the time. At the time, I think I was a sub 200, um, level of T. I had started to put on weight, uh, never had been there in my life. It was super confusing there. Um, and, uh, yeah, super miserable, didn't want to, couldn't even really be around my family or kids. Just was super annoyed, low libido. Um, everything worked, but it just, there's no desire there. There's no, there was no want there and, uh, really just kind of living my whole life in a fog. Right. And, um, so there was just one night that, uh, and it's in the book. There's one night that I just, I was like, I'm done. I wasn't sleeping. I was exhausted. I was in pain and I just wanted to rest. And I had made the decision that, you know, that I was going to go call it quits. And, um, and, you know, thankfully for me, it kind of, I got my wits about me and, uh, started thinking about my, you know, my kids at the time and what kind of life I wanted them to have and what, you know, what kind of impact this would have on them. And, um, you know, took a big breath and paused and, and and thought bigger than myself. And after that, I was shortly after that, it was something with, um, I got linked up with an organization that helped me start the the Raider project. And this is kind of leading into that. And initially it was the, the whole thing was getting guys jobs. I thought if they could leave special operations and get a six figure job, then everything was great. I don't know why I thought that because I had a six figure job getting out and my life was a complete fucking disaster. 
So I don't know why I thought that just making money would be would be the thing, but that's what it was. That's what I thought. So that's what we. That's what I set out to do. Is you know use my network, use use the networking that I had done, use the network of a couple other people to just get people employed when they had a soft. So they have a soft landing outside the military. Um, come to find out that we needed to really work on the human piece of that. And, and so we would get guys six figure jobs and they nuked, they nuked themselves. They nuked their life. They blew it all up. Self-sabotage every time. So we were just, they were failing at that. But once we switched to working on the human being piece, the mind, body, and spirit piece and getting them healthy and whole through that transition process, the job just kind of came naturally. Like life kind of lined up for them. But they had to spend the time to work on themselves. And same same with me. That's So when I linked up with that organization, I used myself as a guinea pig and got real vulnerable. And I went through a, a two-week inpatient brain clinic. Um, I started doing every therapy that you can you could imagine, whether it be yoga, uh, horse stuff. Um, we did a bunch of retreats, um, you know, and stem cells and all kinds of different things. I just put myself out there. And got real vulnerable with who I was as a person and just sort of working on myself. And that allowed me to kind of be that guinea pig and start to grow past that. And um, and it, 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 would, it wasn't an overnight process. And in some ways, you know, I'm still trying to figure some things out and grow as a human as a human being. Um, and I think that that's I think that's where if you can get vulnerable with yourself, I think that's where you really get the growth is allowing knowing that and this is something that comes with age and i said this the other day i said you know when i was younger i thought i knew it all and i realized now as the older i get the less and less that i know and the more that i need to work on you know but when you're young that you think you know more and you don't you don't think you need to work on much you know but as you age it's like i don't know shit i need to work on a lot and i think that's where the beauty kind of comes into play if you can get vulnerable and say hey i don't know shit and uh, I got a lot of self-improvement to do, then that's a real good place to be. And, and I think that's where I, I think that's where a lot of my success came from. Well, you talked about, you know, like so many people have been on here already, um, you know, walking into a room, holding a pistol, um, thinking about, you know, ending it all. And when you said about, you know, PTSD being weakness, that was one of the old stigmas that, you know, a lot of us have heard. Another stigma is that suicide is cowardless. You know, I mean, excuse me, cow- cowardice and, you know, the, the, the kind of pussy way out, as it were. Yeah. The more yeah. people that I get on here, there are two common themes and it doesn't, I'm, I'm prefacing that the brain is not thinking the right way. It's completely distorted. Right. But these men and women at that point think that they're a burden to their family. They think yeah. that they're going to alleviate that. And then there's the suffering side they want to end as well. Was that somewhere that you were at at that point? Absolutely. I actually made a video a, a video about that. Um, if you've Have you been on my YouTube? Um, yes. Have you seen, did you see the one that says the worst enemy you'll face every day? I didn't watch that one, no. Go go watch that one. It's short. Go watch that one. I don't want to. I don't want to give it away. It's the worst enemy you'll face every day. It's on my channel. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I was like, I'm a burden to my child because at the time I couldn't even like really inter- engage with my family. At the time, I felt like I was a burden. And we say these things like, they'll be better off without you, right? They'll be better off without you. You know, you just you're the problem. 
they're not the problem. You're the problem. Um, so, you know, they'll get the insurance money. They're going to get $1.4 million. You know, they're going to find on, you know, they're going to meet somebody else. Everything's going to be great. And simultaneously, you're suffering. And that's what I tell people. I said, I don't think people want to die. I don't think people want to commit suicide. I, you know, when they do it, that's, I truly believe that's not what they want. What they want is to rest. They're so mentally exhausted with what they have, what's going on and how they feel in their life that they just want to rest. They're not sleeping. They're not feeling good. They're not right in the head. And so by committing suicide in their mind, it will be blackout and they will be at peace. So they're making a permanent decision off a temporary, you know, situation. And, uh, and I said that in one of my speaks and I think I said that in the book as well. I mean, that's, that's, I think when it, when it comes to veterans or first responders and people in that situation, I think that's what the actual act is. The act is trying to find some peace. Yeah. Well, I think it's important because you can, when you tell people, oh, you know, being selfish, think about who you love, you're going to leave it behind. That's, that's not how the, the mindset, the, the state of the mind They're is so distorted. No, but if you no. can tell them, hey, you're going to get to a point where you're going to be sitting there thinking you're a burden to your family. When you get to that point, that's when the red flag should come up and be like, time out. Yeah, you know, this is exactly what they told me I'd be thinking. I think that's the thing. Because, that's what I said in the book. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's so, yeah, it's so important uh, to hear that. So when I speak about these subjects, I t especially the people that are just getting out, and I said, listen, what would I tell you in six months? You're going to want to commit suicide. People are like, oh, you know, there's no way. I'm just telling you. In six months, you're going to think about ending your life because all this shit's going to catch up with you. And, and but if I tell you now, and you like you said, if you think about it and go, wait a minute, Nick said at this time, I would think these things, and this is what to do about it. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of power in that knowledge, right? That self awareness, you know. And, and, and I think, you know, earlier in the days of, you know, in the, in the, you know, late 2010s, I guess you could say when all these guys were getting out, um, and you know, from, from being at war and whatnot, we didn't have this information. We didn't have any, we didn't have any tools. We didn't have, there was nothing, there was nothing that we could do about these different things. Nobody was really looking at it. Like it was still a bad stigma. You know what I mean? It was something that you needed to be like put away for or be go to a hospital for and um and and it's so it's so incredibly sad because the solution is really not that difficult it's not that big of a deal yeah well another thing that that you guys talked about that really rang with me as well is, is i think it was you and jeff um this current you know um era of veterans you know is seeing so much combat and at a, at a very extended level i mean like you said you know more than a decade now um one of the previous guests I had was talking about um, the 22, a lot of them being Vietnam vets. So another era where they were fighting for a long time, they were received very poorly when they came back. And it kind of parallels the fire and police. Like the, the firefighters of yesteryear were sitting around playing cards, waiting for a fire once in a while. The firefighters of today are running their ass off 24 hours a day, going to school shootings and all these horrendous things. So again, our professions have changed too. So yeah. it's not just the job. I think that your profession and, and you know my associate professions are seeing so much more and getting so you know, so little rest these days that this generation is far more at risk even than the ones before us. 
Absolutely. It's just like you, I think the the answer to that is there's there's more. There's more going on. I mean, you know, they they weren't they weren't saving meth heads on on a on a 24 hour basis like you guys are. I mean, literally, you know, my brother in law was a firefighter, and he's like, I just every day I'm just running around saving people from meth addiction, you know, meth overdose. You know, so there is no you're not sitting around playing cards, Jack and still at the firehouse. You're out on calls all the time. You know, one one right after the other for an entire shift. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest difference is especially, you know, in, in the military is the generations, just things have changed. And it's just so much more taxing on on what we do. And with little to no thanks, no appreciation or really understanding of that whatsoever. It's just expected, right? It's expected that it's a job and you, you're expected to do it and keep your mouth shut about it. Don't complain about it. Yeah, and also you got a bunch of men and women that that love the profession and love making a difference, you know. So, you know, it's we do it to ourselves for the right reasons, but it's taken advantage of by a lot of people. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, transitioning to one more area because I know we're you know getting to the end now, but I want to make sure we talk about this. Um, the beginning of last year, obviously, this pandemic you know swept through through the globe, and you know, right at the very beginning, I actually had Jeff back on. I think it was in March last year. I had Tim Kennedy on. I had Jocko. I had a bunch of people that I knew were kind of middle of the road, health, wellness people talking about, you know, the important things, the outdoors, the exercise, the nutrition. Um, and then we watched you. We watched Nick Wickham, who was on recently um, from the UK and all these gyms getting closed down. And I would watch Chick-fil-A still have a, a line around the fucking restaurant the entire year. And so one of the things I think that needs to be talked about, I hate the idea that we're just going to move on from this last year and not learn from any of the lessons. Um, you know, the, the wellness element was completely disregarded, almost downplayed, like the underlying health issue. So kind of lead me through that last year through your eyes and, you know, and, and some of the battles that you fought up there. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, like my, uh, my, well, we shut down. We did the right, you know, we, we thought we were doing the right thing when the, the big shutdown came, the whole two week, two week flatten the curve. You know, I, I had a training facility, um, you know, in, in my neighborhood. And I was like, okay, this, I, I very, very begrudgingly, I said, okay, I think this is bullshit, but, you know, we don't know. We don't know what this is going to turn into. This could be the army of the dead in, in the next, you know, two weeks or month. You know, this might be the zombie apocalypse. I don't think so. I think it's BS, but whatever. Um, so we'll do the two weeks. Two weeks turned into four weeks. And then in six, in five weeks, there was a press conference from the governor in the state. And I watched and listened to every word he said, and he didn't mention training facilities one bit. Basically, it was they were still closed. And I said, I'm I'm done with this. No cases here. Like I don't like, like you're talking about an invisible an invisible enemy that I can't see and nobody nobody's concerned about in our in our local area. And um, so I opened back up after like six weeks, and uh, went on the CDC website, said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, ultimately, no issues initially, and then the whole everything you guys can watch the video i won't go into it but basically we got raided um shut down temporarily and then you know i went back and forth with them and we we, we fought the good fight and eventually op reopened and, and and stayed open for a little while until you know another shutdown happened and um i i ended up last year in november closing the gym down permanently just because of the a monetary issue 
Um, everybody was so deathly afraid that, you know, you were if you went to a gym, you got COVID. We had no cases, zero, zero cases, zero cases across the board. And, uh, but people are so deathly, you know, people are essentially believe the hype and believe that that was part of the problem that, um, they just weren't coming. And you saw this across the board, across everything, you know, and, um, and so we ended up closing, we ended up closing anyway, but, uh, but there's a, there's still a federal suit. There's a federal lawsuit. Um, there's a, there's a federal lawsuit that's pending against the town for, um, illegal seats and search and seizure of, of our property. Um, and it's not against COVID or the executive order or anything that, that they said it was, it was just simply the fact that they, um, did not have a warrant to enter the enter, enter premises and do what they did. Um, you know, that's, that's it. Um, and that's, that's our, that's our case. And, uh, but nonetheless, you, you know, when it comes down to like what you said, there has not been one single government organization in the world that's talked about what to do on the health side of this. It's all about st- stay hidden, fat and sick. They have not said go outside and get vitamin D because it boosts your immune system. They not say go lose weight, eat better, nothing to actually, I cannot believe, I mean, I would think somewhere internationally, there would be some country that's a little bit more hip to health that would be like, Hey guys, we're going to combat this a different way. We're going to make everybody super fit and their immune systems through the roof, through healthy eating of, you know, real, real food, you know, meats and veggies and uh, exercise and vitamin D. But not one has not one says you need to go lose weight because and then you, you look at the last study during this last 20 years, uh, tw- 2020, I think the average weight gain was 29 pounds highest in millennials. Yeah, they just released this huge study about how much weight people have gained over 2020, which is ironic because that makes you more susceptible to COVID-19 allegedly. So why would we do that? I, I, if anything, this would be like the. The, you know, the gas, the, the lighting, the gas, um, you know, the bonfire of like everybody needs to get healthy now. No, like you said, this McDonald's down the road open the entire time lying around the thing still is. Yep. See, I think that's that's why these conversations need to still be happening, because now a year later, we can look back and wherever we're standing on planet Earth at the moment and go the people that we chose to be our leaders, did they do a good job? I know Guernsey, a little island off um, the UK, has done an amazing job. They locked down immediately and they they basically went around about their life from, from July through to December, I think it was. Then they had a little flare up again, locked down, and then they opened up again. So they controlled their borders. They had a pre-plan. They executed. They were golden. I think New Zealand and Japan have done very well. So there are countries that have done well. A lot of these countries have underlying good health anyway, just because of the overall philosophy. But what I saw here early was a, it was like heresy if you talked about underlying conditions. And then now I think that WHO study just came out like, oh, you know, shocking news. Obesity actually makes you more susceptible. And I think even the vaccines are less effective from what they're saying. But we have to have this conversation. I got vaccinated the other day because I haven't seen my family for two years. And I'm like, I... I don't like the fact that I have to, but I'm not going to let that be the one thing that stops me from going to see my family. You know what I mean? So, and I'm not so deathly afraid of it that I think it's any worse than the Hep B and MMR and all the other ones I had to have as a, as a medic. But God forbid that this year comes and goes and we ignore 
the the message from Mother Nature in March, April, where the canals were clearing up and the the skies were were opening up and you know all these elements but if you just get a shot in your arm then you go back to the shitty health practices that you had before then you know shame on anyone that calls himself a leader in this country absolutely i mean i think that i think the really i think the the focus needs to be on ending the obesity and heart disease epidemic like why don't we work on that like I can't, I can't go walk two feet without finding somebody that's overweight. Like it's like almost nine out of 10 people. And you look at somebody like myself, you know, and I'm not like, I'm not some, you know, I don't know, fitness, whatever I am, I am like it, it but I'm not like something crazy. Right. I'm just in good shape for my age, like v- very phenomenal, good shape, but I'm not, you know, it's not over the, it's not overboard, but I'm looked at like, a fitness crazy person. No, I'm just normal. This is what normal would be if everything was normal. This is just normal. Yeah. Well, it's the same as, you know, when you say you eat organic food and like, oh, what are you, some kind of hippie? Uh, because yeah. I don't want chemicals on my food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what makes me weird. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's scary to see. It's scary to see when when the negatives of of fitness and the negatives of eating what if eating well become that's what's normal what what's normal is being 30 pounds overweight and eating fast food that's normal and if you don't do if you're not 30 pounds overweight and you're does you don't eat shitty food you're some sort of weirdo yeah that's that's mind-blowing to me it is yeah it's so backwards well i mean again you know i appreciate your your perspective on that because the more voices that we have out there you know you said about even with the drug thing how do we change it my thing is things like this you just get people talking to the point where they demand change and you get people educated on you know the covid maybe they just skated through this one well there's another one coming at some point and don't know what it looks like or what it'll be called but the only thing you can control is your own mental and physical health exactly and, and I've, I, man, I love you say that because like people get so stressed out about and people got stressed out about the politics and the presidential race and this. And I'm like, like, listen, at the end of the day, what can you control? What time you wake up, how you treat other people, the food you pe- put in your mouth and then how you train your body. Those are things you can control. Everything else that is outside of your control, man. So why are you stressed out about it? Why are you freaking out and losing your mind and and, and suffering your mental health from it? You shouldn't be because these are the things you control. Those you can't. Yeah. I did a video a few months ago now and I was like, what it, the message should have been is I want you to assume you are going to get COVID-19. Imagine what a motivating tool that would have been to think about what you're eating, to maybe get outside, get some sunlight, maybe do some yoga or meditation, you know, spend a little bit more time with your family, whatever it is. But instead, like you said, it was the isolation, stay inside. Was, and that was the was worst health advice. I was kind of like with Jeff. I, mean, I was being a little bit of a smart ass. I was like, I will willingly get COVID. I've said the same thing. Lick my face and get, get it over with. <laughs> get, yeah, get, give it give it to me and watch what happens. I probably had it on it, to be honest. At some point, I probably had it. I think I had it back last 2020 January. So I had an upper respiratory infection that just wouldn't go away. I took some glutathione, kept training. You know, it went away. It took me about a month. Um, but I, I would willingly get it. Because I trust my lifestyle, my health that much, and my immune system that much to take care of me. Because I because I invest in my health. Yeah, absolutely. It's resilience. That's what it comes down yeah. to. 
You know, I mean, we've been around for, you know, millennia living in far more filthy conditions than we do now. And we were just fine dropping babies into a field, <laughs> standing there. I, I tell you what, I've had some, I've had some serious um, reactions uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. I am, <laughs> I am not worried about COVID compared to some of the things that I've gotten eating in those countries. Yeah, no, I'm sure. What? <laughs> Well, speaking of that, so I want to transition some closing questions so we can let you go. Um, yeah. The book that I listened to, and I, I, I personally recommend listening to it over reading it because of all the the, uh, the parts in between. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's uh, uh, Excommunicated Warrior. So tell people where they can find that. You can get that at uh, xwarrior.com. That's on my website. I sign those books. Um, those are the only ones I have control over. Um so xwarrior.com. There's also what's great about that website specifically is the videos that are on there. So a lot of my keynotes that are that are that were precursor to the book of like an hour long, an hour long version of me on stage, kind of breaking the book down and telling some stories. Now, keep in mind, the the video is um, it's the movie version of the book. Right. So it's 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 a snapshot of it. Um, and then obviously the book goes way more in depth with stories and, and breaking things down and breaking some science down of what's happening with, with people transition. Um, and, and then, uh, but it's also available on Amazon and audible. And I agree. I think the, you know, as much as it is the nice to have the book on the shelf, the audio book is so awesome. Um, the, the, I don't read it, but the guy who read it, he, he just, he, he knocked it out of the park. And, um, and then the podcast with all of my guys from different special operations units talking about those chapters, those conversations were just so invaluable, um, which, you know, could you listen to it? I mean, I think that's really what it, it like, it's the icing on the cake with that book. Absolutely. And then for people listening that are thinking about the military, you have some prep books as well. Yeah, we, so we, we have a, we have uh so that was something that kind of came out of, out of necessity of people like reaching out to me. And so we, we do do a lot of military prep as well now. Um, and then we actually went into, it's even bigger than that, um, was kind of what, kind of what we talked about was getting men. Uh, we have a company called the Agogi and, um, getting men to get back to their roots, becoming anti-fragile, becoming good dads, becoming good husbands. Uh, and we feel like the very foundation of that is getting men fit and healthy and and then building upon that foundation because we feel like the men across the board have either kind of let themselves go or they they prioritize they thought they they think they're prioritizing their family over themselves but then they hit that 40 something and then they're they're you know they're having their type 2 diabetic they're having heart, they're getting heart disease they're having strokes and so who are they serving how can they pr protect and provide for their family when they're, you know, fat, sick and nearly, nearly dead? Um, so we need to get men back to their warrior selves, the, the hunters, the providers, the, the true men of what they are so they can truly be um, what they're supposed to be in their family. Absolutely. And then your website, where was the kind of central location for all this? It's my name. Yeah, my name. My name dot com. Yeah, Nick dot com. Beautiful. People have to look that up to spell it right. Yeah, no. Just Google. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then that's that's your work. So one of the first closing questions, is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated? Oh, my God. There's so many books and so many different things. Um, so I guess related to mine, I guess you would say the next one would be Man Up by Bedros Koulian. 
that's the it's a short book it's not very long but it's it really is kind of like a uh, uh everything is your fault so you need to fix yourself <laughs> i like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right what about a movie and or documentary uh movie mm. i love movies there's so many give me a subject Oh, actually, I guess military, because it'd be an interesting perspective with you actually 12 having strong. 12 Strong. 12 Strong. I think that was one of the best ones. I don't really I don't really watch that many military movies, but that movie did such a great job, other than a couple of the sentences that Chris Hemsworth said that sounded like Thor. Um, <laughs> they did such a, he, he kind of pulled his Thor self into there for a couple seconds. That movie did a really great job of explaining the dynamics between the tribal leaders um of afghanistan and the military of special operations um very subtle things but there was there were some things that i I really really enjoyed with that movie um and as far as document documentary i like uh fed up it's more of the hell side and sugar so fed up i think it's free on youtube now um fed up um is talking about basically what the sugar industry and what the government's kind of done to and corporations have done to kids focused really on sugar and kids addiction um, one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, that's another thing I talked about with um, this last year. Like, why hasn't there been discussion and completely changing the way we we teach our kids about food and what we serve in schools? Money, James. Money. <laughs> Heresy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, you just named so many people that have been on here that are all my some of my favorite favorite human beings. Um, I think the next one would be uh, would be Bedros. I think that he I think he would be a great uh, a great addition to the lineup because you just hit all of the individuals. I'll give you two: him and then another one of mine, Kirk Weisler, uh, who was on the book with me. Brilliant. He was the Marine as well. No, Green Beret. Yeah, he, was, he was the Army Ranger. Ranger. That's right. Okay, third time lucky. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress these days? Um, what do I do? Jiu-jitsu. How long have you been doing that now? Uh, going on two years. So the thing is with that, I found is it's not a it's not a re- it's not a yoga. It's not a relaxation. But I don't do well with re- relaxation. But the the difference, and I just did. Uh, did you see the the thirty day challenge where I did sixty sessions in thirty days? No, I didn't, but that sounds horrendous. I just started back and I'm already sore. <laughs> uh, so to check that out, it's on my channel. It's a, we did a whole series over it. Um, very well, very well produced. The team did a great job with that. Um, but the reason why it's a decompression is with everything I have going on in my life with multiple businesses and family and everything, you can't think about nothing else. You have to tune out your world when you're doing that. Because you are playing chess and putting a puzzle puzzle together and exhausted all simultaneously while you're training. Um, So you really have to block out the world. And it's the only time that I'm singularly focused on one thing. So it really does leave you just completely exhausted. But it's it, it, it really is a reset because you get to tune out all everything else. Yeah, I always tell people as well, I think it's almost impossible to get road rage after you've been training. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're like, yeah, whatever, man, just go. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, you mentioned with the the book site, you mentioned your own site. What about other platforms? Where can people kind of reach out to you or find more about you? 
uh, everything. I got a, my own my own podcast, The Harbor Site, um, that's on Apple and everything else. Um, and then yeah, if, I mean YouTube, Instagram, and uh, I mean we we do we do a lot a lot of video production on YouTube. And then, uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on Instagram, kind of just daily stuff and little snippets of my own thoughts and how I, how I feel about things uh, on there as well. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Nick, I just want to say thank you so much. I, I had a funny feeling it was going to be uh, an interesting conversation. I love, you know, the places that it's gone and just the more of these subjects that we hear discussed by people that we respect, I think the more weight it gives them, you know, we have such a polarizing yeah. thing when we just trust the the television for our information. So I really appreciate you, you know, being vulnerable today. I mean, that's what it was and, and giving us your experience. And I really enjoyed the book, highly recommend people out there listening to it. And uh, I appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Excellent, it's been a pleasure. It's been a long time I've been wanting to come on here. <laughs>